Welcome to the Space Between podcast. I am William. And I'm Katie. And in this podcast, we talk about the complexities of life, faith in the 21st century, and everything in between. Often, that space between is where a lot of us find ourselves. We hope to provide a place where people can be honest and we can engage with one another with compassion wherever we may end up on our journey. Well, today we have a special guest on. We have Professor Ian Bradley here with us to talk about his book, God is Green, which is an updated version. Uh, So nice to have you on today, Ian. Thanks for coming. No, it's very good to be with you, William. Yeah, so why don't we start with a little bit about who you are and what you do for those who are not familiar with you. Yep. Well, I'm now retired. Um, I was um, a professor of cultural and spiritual history at St. Andrews University, and I taught there for um, about 20 years um, in the field of both practical theology and church history. I'm also a Church of Scotland minister, so through my time at St. Andrews, I was um, the Honorary Church of Scotland chaplain at the university, which I've just had to give up because of age, but I still do um, a fair amount of um, taking services and preaching, um, covering locums and that kind of thing. My background before I was an academic was was partly in um, journalism and broadcasting, and I, I, I suppose I would describe myself as a compulsive writer. I've I've written more than forty books, and I'm I'm hoping I might make the fifty before I finally <laughs> <laughs> hang up my pen or my word processor or whatever. <laughs> Very good. And uh, we met through the Iona community, uh, actually on the island for the reopening of the Abbey this year, which was a brilliant experience for myself, and I'm sure it was for you as well. Um, But I would love for you to comment just briefly on how you came to be involved with the community and its significance to the practice of your faith today. Yes, I would would love to, William. And it was it was great to to meet both of you there. And as you say, we had that wonderful week in in June. Seems a long time ago, really, but it was the uh, the start of the of the summer. I suppose I came yeah. um, to the Ina community really through my interest in Columba, who's always been a kind of uh, insofar as us Presbyterians can have patron saints, he's always been my patron saint. I think <laughs> because my mother, who who grew up in Argyll, and you can probably tell I didn't grow up in Scotland. I grew up in the far south of England but um, she was always very attached to Columba and there was a there was a portrait of Columba sitting in our house as I grew up as a boy and indeed my parents were married in St Columba's Church in in London where my wife and I the Church of Scotland Church there were married so Columba was a big um, factor in my life and I suppose that was what drew me to Iona. Um, I was drawn to the Iona community I think because of its spirituality Um, it's it's wonderful wonderfully rich worship and and its commitment to um, peace and justice. I've been an associate member, I suppose, gosh, for certainly well over 20 years, probably more like um, 30 years. And I've been very Mm -hmm. privileged and lucky in that I've been able to lead a lot of weeks um, on Iona in the Abbey and in the McLeod Centre on subjects like Celtic Christianity, pilgrimage, um, and and various other uh, 
um, thoughts as as well. But I would say Iona has been hugely important to my own spiritual life. It's it's refreshed me, um, both when I've been there worshiping in the Abbey, but also using the resources, the resources of the Wild Goose um, group, um, the the songs of of John Bell, who's become a good friend of mine. And when I was teaching at St Andrews, I would often have John up to to talk about the Psalms and. Uh, uh, contemporary worship. And um, so Iona, both in terms of the place, um, the witness of the community and and the people involved have, have been hugely important in, in developing my own um, spiritual life. I, I would say it's been one of the most important places and one of the most important groups in in informing me, really, informing my, my Christianity and keeping it fresh and alive. You know, they talk mm -hmm. about the Iona community's basis as being new ways uh, to touch the heart of God and 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 bring people in, and I, I think it's been hugely innovative, particularly in in the area of worship, but also in 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 much of its witness as well. Yeah, there's definitely something very special about it that leads to uh, a newness, as you say, and uh, and renewing faith for people. Um, that was definitely my experience as well. Um, but today we're going to talk a little bit about your book, God is Green, which is an updated version of it. So what, first of all, what prompted you to update this book? And do you want to maybe just comment on some of those main updates that have come with it? Yes, I, this was a book that came out 30 years ago, one of the first books, really, I think, so this was 1990, on Christianity and the environment at a time when, when I and, and many others were getting very concerned about what was happening to our planet, but it was nothing like, of course, as urgent as it is now. And I felt that 30 years on, um, there was perhaps something to be said for um, revisiting it. I mean, there have been huge numbers of books, of course, out since then on this topic. Topic, but I still felt I had something quite distinctive to say because there's there's something I say which I don't think is quite in the other books and it's quite a short book and it's quite an accessible book and I also I obviously wanted to update it I, I wanted to to reflect on what has happened not just in terms of the, of the whole climate uh, crisis but also positive things that the churches have done and the way many Christians have at last uh, got got into green theology um, but I was also conscious, um, I had a huge number of letters after this book was published, more, more reaction, I think, than I've had to any of my other books. And um, some of them, I think, quite rightly pointed out that one of the things I was criticising was the very anthropocentric, in other words, human-centric view that the churches for, for centuries have taken um, and, and suggested that really God is only concerned about us human beings and not really about the rest of creation. And I felt, realised in terms of some of the letters I got, that even I had, had slipped into this heresy a bit in some of what I'd said. For example, I'd talked about our role as being stewards of creation. And although I would, would still go along with this, I think even that is is quite anthropocentric. It's putting us at the centre. And so one of the main changes I've made to the book is it's got, I hope, much more humility and much more of a sense that actually we have to listen to the rest of God's creation, which may be speaking to us, whether it's the birds of the air or the or the field, the, the lilies of the field, who are of course so often referenced in both in the Old Testament and by Jesus as as uh, 
people and, and things that we should pay attention to and listen to. So the, the whole thrust of the book slightly changed. I mean, the main arguments are the same, but I think I've become more conscious of our need actually to listen, to be quiet, to pay attention to the rest of creation. We're all in it together. And indeed, the rest of creation may have quite a lot to, to teach us. It's not just a matter of, of us leading the rest, the rest of creation out of the, the terrible uh, predicament we're in at the moment. Yes, and we may have a moment later on to speak a little bit more about that anthropocentrism when we discuss the concept of the cosmic Christ. Um, but just to start with is on the actual content of the book. Um, you say in the book that greening Christianity does not involve grafting onto it some alien philosophy, but rather restoring its original character. It means stripping off a whole series of alien layers that have accumulated to reveal the original greenness of the Garden of Eden and the cross on Calvary. So could you speak a little on what this original greenness is that you speak about in the book? Yes, certainly. I think if you go back both to some of the, the key books in the Old Testament, and I'm thinking particularly of the Psalms and the prophets, particularly the book of Job and, and, and Jeremiah, uh, and indeed in the Gospels, you find some very clear messages. First of all, that God is concerned with the whole of creation, not just the human part. It's there very clearly in the Psalms where you get these lovely references to the cedars of Lebanon and the birds high up and the mountains mountain goats far away from where humans are. Uh, it's there in uh, the book of Job, where, of course, God says to Job, where were you when I created the earth? He, he turns back all Job's questions and complaints on Job and, and basically says, you know, the whole of creation is a lot more important just than, than you, Job. And I think it's there also in, in Jesus's words, um, his parables, which so often uh, use the natural world to, to teach us what we should be doing. Uh, you know, they consider the birds of the air, they, and, and, and as I say, the lilies of the field, and, and they're not worried, why should, why should we be? Jesus is constantly referencing uh, the natural world. He's also often portrayed as, as interacting with it. So my argument is that there in the Bible and also in the early church is an intrinsically green, if we want to call it that, approach to the natural world, holistic, um, concerned with, with all of creation, where we have our role just as part of something much bigger as, as fellow creatures along with uh, the rest of, of, of God's creation, and that that original vision was lost and overlaid by a whole lot of basically anthropocentric thinking uh, in the Middle Ages, particularly with, by Augustine and others, and then in the Reformation, and that both the Catholic and the Protestant branches of the church, less perhaps the Eastern Orthodox Church, which has always kept, uh, I think, a more holistic creation-centered vision, but the Western churches have moved very far away from this essential greenness. So, so as you say, what I am saying is we, we don't need to invent some whole new theology, although I think there are uh, modern um, theologies and indeed things coming out of modern science which can help us. I think we just need to go back actually to the original 
texts of the Old Testament and the Gospels, and we find there something which is intrinsically green and I think speaks very uh, closely and precisely and perhaps disturbingly to our present uh, crisis. Yes, I think that's very important, especially at a time where for many Christianity over the past couple of centuries anyway, um, have not been the greatest champions of green causes, uh, of green movements, and haven't been as vocal or supportive or even able to articulate in theological language the importance of the environmental issues that we face today which is why you see many people I suppose turning towards you could call it pre-Christendom religion and paganism and other forms of spirituality that have this uh, appearance of being more connected to the earth and awareness of the earth um, but I think what you say there about that original greenness uh, can bring us back to what the early church of what christianity the messages that are present there from the beginning um that allow us to engage with that and reclaiming that and turning it into new environmental language allows us to engage with that in a more full and holistic way while also holding on to the faith that we have okay so uh in the book you also address the concept of the fall and you mentioned matthew fox's book original blessing and the value that can be found in rediscovering an expression of christianity that is not centered on a fall redemption narrative but you go on to then argue that the narrative of the fall is actually helpful when it comes to addressing the climate crisis, especially when viewing the fall as humanity failing not only God, but the rest of creation, the whole of creation through continuing destructive and damaging practices. So what green messages can we take from the narrative of the fall? That's a very interesting question, William. And, and as you rather imply, I think it's it's a complex one. And and I mean, you've already said that in some senses, I, I both um, critique the doctrine of the fall, but then then employ it. And um, I think it's it's tricky. I mean, I think there are several things to be said. One is going back to what you, you just, I think, very eloquently said about why many environmentalists have preferred other religions to Christianity is that one of the things they have criticized about Christianity is this very strong doctrine of the fall as applied to the whole natural world and somehow it has been seen as depraved and dark and therefore um, perfectly reasonable for us to exploit it uh, as we would and undoubtedly this is the way some uh, Christian theologians and, and church leaders have interpreted it. When you look at the doctrine of the fall of course it is it's very interesting because the fall of, of humanity, however one reads that, does seem to be bound up with the fall of, of nature. And, and, and one simple and quite interesting point is that if you look at, at, at what God says originally uh, to Adam in, in Genesis 1, it appears that all creatures were originally intended to be vegetarian. Um, God talks about giving us as humans the plants of the field to eat and he also talks about other creatures having that and there is no sense at all in the 
original Genesis um, commission or command from God that we should be eating anything other than, than plants. Now, after the fall and the covenant with, with Noah after the flood, that is when you get the idea of, of meat eating. And it's very interesting because theologians have interpreted this as a kind of consequence of the fall, which is why we, 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 we came to be meat eaters. And it would fit in with what evolutionary biologists tend to say, which is that originally uh, we were, humans were um, veg vegetarians, that we, we were plant eaters, and it was only later in our development that we became meat eaters. So there's a case where the doctrine of the fall, in a curious way, possibly mirrors the, the evolution of, of humans. Now, I'm not a vegetarian. I mean, many of my Christian friends are going vegetarian and vegan, and they would argue very strongly that, that, that the Bible originally tells us that. But that's one aspect of the fall. Are we, as it were, eating meat because of our, our fallen state? Um, I think more centrally is the point that you alluded to, that the fall, if we think about the human fall, it is, as we know, because we have tried to be too godlike, we have overreached ourselves, we, we have uh, lost our humility, which of course means close to the earth, humus, the, the, the walking humbly with God means we, we are walking close to the earth and living close to the earth. And, and so a central aspect of the fall is the way we have um, dominated the rest of creation and, and lost that basic humility and adama again coming from the the dust or earth of the soil we've we've lost that that image and so i think you can interpret the fall in in quite an ecological way i mean we also have of course that wonderful passage in paul about the whole of creation groaning and being in travail and there is of course an undeniable sense that that something is incomplete here and we are we are still working out both in terms of humanity and possibly the rest of creation our salvation leading to the new heaven and the new earth and if we go back to the garden of eden i mean the the traditional christian view i suppose is this was the primal perfect state from which humanity fell and somehow we dragged down the rest of creation with us. But you can, of course, interpret the Garden of Eden as being the ultimate state which God is promising us, the new heaven and the new earth. So we are, as it were, incomplete now we are whether you call it sin or or um shortcomings or or our natural uh, pride and hubris whatever you want to call it there is clearly something very wrong with um human nature but there's also something which is not quite right in the natural world um and maybe a lot of it is our fault but there's there's also other things so are we as it were the whole of creation groaning and in travel waiting for the um this great um, new creation which which we are which we are promised so that's that's some of the ways i'd look at it although there are there are other ways it's a, it's a it's a complex area i think but one i think we obviously have to to wrestle with as christians if we are taking the the the, the bible seriously I think as well, it's an important um, 
issue to discuss when it comes to praxis within churches as well, especially in regards to uh, seeing an increased amount of incorporation of prayers of repentance mm. um, in church liturgies and church services um, across the board. Um, would you say the same? I couldn't agree more, William. I think the, the, the need for repentance, penitence, and also I would add, and it's something I've been thinking about quite a lot and writing and preaching about, uh, lament and lamentation, which, which also goes in with that. I think we've lost that very rich biblical tradition of communal repentance and lamentful we are but i think it's acknowledging um as you say that all is not right acknowledging our own responsibility for it and lament which seems to me a very neglected part of of, of our christian tradition you know hugely there in the psalms uh, in the in the old testament books the book of lamentation of course um and and lament doesn't mean we are giving up faith in god uh, lament is still rooted in faith but it's acknowledging that there are things which are profoundly dark um which which as you say i think we we may need to repent of but but i think exactly as you say rediscovering repentance penitence lament is is hugely important you know we've we've inclined particularly over recent decades a lot of our worship's been been very sort of happy bubbly on the surface um and it's not necessarily what we really feel we're not really expressing i think often what we really feel i mean we we obviously do need to cheer ourselves up and we need to um to, to find the joy of of worship but i don't think we we we, we should be turning our back on that other side and and i couldn't agree with you more about that need for repentance and and indeed lament yeah i think there's a, a need to have that that balance between um having hope um and not sitting in despair to the point where you become hopeless about the situation and and therefore leading to inaction on stuff like the climate crisis and things but allowing lament and despair to be formative in our response to the climate crisis rather than just being um the kind of wallowing in the uh the end of the world almost um but actually allowing it to inspire us and bring hope for um as you say the renewal of creation um one last thing that i would like to speak about on the sort of main topics of the books is this concept that you mentioned of the cosmic christ um and also the theological concept of panentheism mm -hmm. um you say that it's compatible with some of the central doctrines of christianity specifically you mentioned the incarnation and the sacraments so i have two questions on this you can answer it together or we can answer it separately i can ask the second one again um but how does the concept of the cosmic Christ link the cross to a green understanding of Calvary? And then what can a panentheistic view of Christianity say in the face of the climate crisis that classical theism is unable to? Gosh, well, let me take the, the first one first about the, the cross, <laughs> I think, William. Um, I think it's very significant that Jesus dies on a tree. And of course, there is a, there is a long tradition going back to, to kind of early church um, that the tree of, of Calvary is, is in the same, is in the sort of center of the world and, and possibly even um, ties in with, with the Garden of Eden again and original creation. And the fact that Jesus dies in a garden. So you've got this sense of, of Jesus on a tree, which of course, 
course, is is prefigured in in other primal religions where you you have the idea of of the god man being sacrificed on a tree. It's there in Nordic religions, the Yggdrasil. It's there in in other religions, which I think doesn't make it any less valid in in Christianity. But the idea that that God's own son is being sacrificed on a tree, I think, is is hugely important in giving a kind of physical cosmic dimension to Christ. Christ, and, and John's gospel, of course, tells us this, God so loved the world, the cosmos, that he gave his only begotten son, not just that God so loved humanity. Um, the, the Greek word is very clear, it's cosmos. So there is this sense that in giving us Christ and Christ's sacrifice, however we interpret it on that cross, on that tree, is somehow for the whole of creation. It's not just for us and for our sins. So I think that gives it a, a cosmic dimension. I think Christ is also given a cosmic dimension, as I mentioned, by the numerous stories we have of Jesus walking by the side of the lake, walking up the mountain. He's in the desert with the wild beasts when he's being tempted, and yet they don't hurt him. He obviously establishes some relationship with the wild beasts. He is portrayed as the one who stills the storm, who walks on the water, so whatever we make of those miracles, however literally or metaphorically we interpret them, they speak to me of a Christ who is engaged with the whole of the cosmos, uh, with the physical and the material and the natural world as well as the human world. Of course, he is he is um, uh, human himself, and he engages with us as a human as, as well as in his divine aspect. But I think he, he engages with much more than humanity. And the incarnation, yes, clearly the fact that God becomes matter, again, physical matter, uh, I think gives a cosmic dimension to that. Yes, he, 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 God comes to us through a, a human being, Jesus Christ, but it is it's an incarnate human being who is, who is flesh and blood and, and matter. And so I think this, this whole cosmic dimension, which of course has been explored particularly richly by, by mystics, by, by theologians like Teilhard de Chardin, um, and, and in some wonderful poems and literature, and also perhaps particularly in the Orthodox tradition through um, the sacraments, as you say, it's a sacramental view of, of um, uh, Christ and, and the natural world, the, the way the elements of bread and wine become for us the body and blood of Christ, however we want to interpret that, and we would all have different ways of interpreting it depending on our denominational um, tradition. But um, I think all of these point to this, this cosmic dimension of Christ, which, which I think we are recovering, and I think it's central that we do recover if Christianity is is going to, you know, have something distinctive and significant to say about the environmental crisis we're in and and climate change. Yeah, and then that second question, just on this concept of the cosmic Christ, is um, what you mentioned as the panentheistic view of Christianity. So, for those who have maybe not heard of it before, uh, what is panentheism, and then what can uh, a panentheistic view of Christianity say in the face of the climate crisis that classical theism is unable to? Classical theism saw God as being, to some extent, 
distanced from creation you know in 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 the classic sort of idea he's the old man up in the sky uh for a lot of um uh, 18th and 19th century theologians who, who sort of took the deist line you know he'd wound up the clock of the universe but then sort of stood back and and let it tick away and god wasn't particularly involved in creation and this is of course one of the most substantial critiques of christianity by those in the green movement environmental because they say your God, the Christian God, is really not engaged and involved in creation. Uh, we, we don't find God in the, the, the trees and the animals as we do, as, as you said earlier, in, in paganism and animism and, and even to a large extent in, in Buddhism and Eastern religions where there's much more a sense of the divine being in creation. The Christian God seemed very remote and very separate up there in the sky. Now, Pantheism, which is, of course, the idea that God is everything. Uh, in other words, uh, you, you hug a tree because that's God or you, you, you worship a river because that's God. That's not Christianity. But there is something in between classical theism and pantheism, which is this notion of panentheism, that God is in everything. God is not everything in the sense that the pantheist or the pagan would believe, because God has an existence beyond creation and outside creation, but God is also to be found in all creation. Um, and you, you have hints of this in the Bible, I think, again, in the Old Testament, where you, you have a sense of, of God's involvement uh, in, 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 in creation. I think, again, it comes into an incarnational view, as we said, about um, uh, God incarnating God's self in, uh, in matter, in physical matter. It's very strong, of course, in the, in the Celtic tradition. Uh, you have those lovely poems, there is no plant in the ground that is full of his virtue, there is no um, strand on the sea that is, that is full of his love. The notion that, that God's love is, is to some extent incarnated and represented for us, not just in, in, in human beings, but in uh, physical, the physical elements and the, the animal world. And, and I think this is what panentheism means and is about. And I think it does help us because I think it, it helps us to challenge that critique of Christianity, that our God is really not interested in, in the, the future of the cosmos. And, and you know, we can, we can just go on burning the oil and, and driving our SUVs and because God's got it, it, it all under control and he's not really very, very bothered about these things. I think it, it enables us to challenge that and to say, yes, our God, uh, the Christian God, is deeply concerned about these things because because actually God is in all these things. He, 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 as I say, God is beyond um, the cosmos, but, he, but God is also in the cosmos. It's a difficult concept. I think it's probably best uh, approached again through poetry and images um, and illusion rather than, than sort of 
propositional statements the kind of thing we're we're talking about now because it's difficult to put over but i think it's it's something that that many uh christians are grasping and again the the orthodox church helps us i think because they've always had much more of a sense of of uh god being in 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 matter and and um but it's something that that many of us i think are are coming to appreciate and realize and i think it does give give again uh, a significant christian uh input and voice into into debates about climate change and the environment well thank you for sharing all of that obviously we've just covered briefly um some of the material from just two of the chapters on your book um you also discuss uh, things like god's concern for all of creation uh, the dance of creation uh, and humans' response to the climate crisis as well. Um, so I wanted to leave some of that out just so that people could get a, a taster of this from the podcast episode and try and encourage people to go and actually get the book. So where can people find and purchase God is Green? Um, and if people enjoy it and would like to engage with more of your writing, uh, is there any projects that you're currently working on or have recently released that you would like to promote as well? Yes, well, that's that's very kind, William. God is Green, I think, should be fairly easily available, both through um, bookshops and on the web. It's published by by Darton Longman and Todd, who are a, um, a good, well-established, um, small Christian publisher who've done a lot of my my books. And um, it's in paperback, and uh, it's got a, a good endorsement by John Bell. And uh, I, I, I hope uh, people might might enjoy it. It's as I say, it's relatively accessible, I think, and, and relatively short. Um, I've also recently done re rewritten another of my earlier books about St. Columba this year. It's the 1500th anniversary of St. Columba's birthday. He was he was was born in the year 521, uh, probably in December. So he's coming up for his 1500th birthday. And I'm taking a lot of services actually around Scotland at the moment, themed on Columba. But my book on Columba, which is called Columba, uh, Politician, Penitent and Pilgrim. And it, it brings up that theme we talked a bit about repentance and penitence and also the theme of, of pilgrimage, which is perhaps a, another one we can we can actually bring to Christian witness on on the environment and climate change, but Columba, politician, pilgrim, and penitent, published by the the Wild Goose Group, the publishing arm of the Iona community, is is also uh, I think fairly widely available in in paperback. Um, I'm working at the moment on um, on the, the rather gloomy subject of of death, but I think it's a subject that we've we've all been made much more aware of, perhaps because of um, COVID, and it's uh, not of course. Um, Irrelevant to to climate the climate crisis and the environmental crisis, but I've I'm just bringing out in fact next month an anthology of readings and uh, prayers and and poems about. Um, Death and and Heaven, the, the 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 afterlife, which is called the Quiet Haven, which again is published by Darton Longman and Todd. And uh, as we speak, I'm in the middle of researching and writing a book about the particular, I think, distinctive view of um, death and. Um, 
dying in the Hebrides and the Highlands. Um, it's, it's going to be called, I think, Coffin Roads. And there are these extraordinary Coffin Roads you probably know, and many people now walk on them uh, through the Highlands and Islands, which used to be where coffins were carried, sometimes for huge distances, 40 or 50 miles, for people to be buried in these remote island and highland graveyards. It was a great desire for people to get home. But again, I think it speaks to a sense of the, the, the physical, the naturalness of death, and that, that people wanted to lie not just among their forebears, but to lie in the hills and sometimes on the islands. And, and I'm at the moment looking at um, burial places on, on islands in inland lochs, like Loch Shiel up in Moidat and uh, Loch Or and um, other lochs. And, and uh, the, there's, there's a kind of overlap here because I'm, I'm really looking at the way, and I think it was a very healthy way um, uh, Highlanders and Islanders approach death, not as something to be shunned and, and um, uh, as we tend to pushed away into the, the side room of the hospital ward and then just straight to the crematorium. And, and I, they, they had much more ritual and they, they, I think, embraced it much more. And, and it was much more um, of a kind of open um, uh, thing and, and a family thing. And um, so that's where I, where I am at the moment. So, so the, the, the Quiet Haven is this anthology, which is about to come out. And then, then next year, there will be a book probably called The Coffin Roads, a, a rather <laughs> stark title, but I've explained <laughs> to you what it's, what it's about. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I look forward to reading them. And uh, thank you again for coming on today. Um, and I will speak to you soon. Thank you very much, William. It's been a great pleasure. And uh, I hope your, your listeners enjoy it. <laughs> thank you.